Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. And you're below that. You may now leave to go to Children's Church to work on Christmas music. We're looking forward. It's hard to believe Christmas is right around the corner, but um, we've got to get through Thanksgiving first, which is my favorite holiday. So hopefully you'll have a good Thanksgiving this week. Acts chapter 5, as we continue this journey through the book of Acts. And just a reminder to everybody that um, Acts is going to take us a while. And uh, we're just going to go through it and have a good time studying the Word of God together. One of our national heroes is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Many of you know that he did some amazing things in the area of civil rights. Um, He adopted a strategy of what we call civil disobedience. You've ever heard of civil disobedience? It's the idea that you use nonviolence as a way to protest the injustices of your government. He got many of his ideas from Mahatma Gandhi. A Gandhi in 1940s India uh, proposed this nonviolent approach of civil disobedience to help um, in- India get liberation from England during the, the, the Civil War time there. In 1963, Martin Luther King was thrown into jail for peaceably protesting racial segregation that was very deep in this in the south especially in birmingham he spent the night in in the birmingham jail and we have his famous letters from the birmingham jail and he he set forth his his philosophy of of civil disobedience of nonviolence, of of ending segregation ending racism in america now i don't know what you think of the occupy wall street movement there's a lot of different theories out there um i'll just give you my side note i think most of what's going on out there is kind of nuts But as long as we have the Constitution of the United States, people are allowed to peaceably assemble and protest their government. Now, you can be the judge of whether it's peaceful or whether what's going on down there is productive. But we have a Constitution that allows us in this nation to peaceably protest the government. But what about in places where they don't have the Constitution? What about in countries right now where it's illegal to be a Christian? Where you will be thrown in jail for your faith? Just this past week, I got word from the Christian Solidarity Worldwide Movement that in Burma, which is a very volatile country, soldiers from the Burma army came in and shot at worshipers while they were having church. An Assembly of God church on November 6th, they came in, They shot at the congregation. They looted the box where they received their tithes and offerings. One of the church members' house was burned down. Fifty church members were taken to work by force in army camps. The pastor was severely tortured, and one of the deacons was broken, had broken his leg. How would you like to be in Burma this morning worshiping? That's amazing. Who should we obey? Should we obey God? Or should we obey the government? 
Now, it's very easy for us as Americans to say, well, it's, you know, we'll obey God because, you know, after all, it's, it's all about God. But you see, we don't live in a country where we can be severely tortured for our faith. Now, we complain about how things are getting really bad here in America, and they are. But let's not forget that it's not as bad as Burma. It's not as bad as North Korea, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, the Maldives, Laos, Uzbekistan, or even the, the, the country of Georgia. The country of Georgia right now in Russia, you cannot even enter that country if you have a U.S. passport because it's so volatile. So whether we live in a world of, of, of hostile persecution or whether we live right here in northeastern Colorado, there's one thing that you need to understand. Here's the issue for this morning. This is where we're camping out this morning. It's simply this. Obedience to Christ will cause you problems. But in the end, it's worth it. Obedience to Christ will cause you problems. If you're truly obedient to Jesus, it's going to mess up your life. Now, obedience is one of those things that we don't want to hear about. I mean, obedience rings hollow in our culture. Children don't like to be told to obey their parents. We don't want to obey the governing authorities. This whole idea of obedience just seems passe in our culture. When I stand up here and say the word obedience, a lot of you may be bristling because we don't talk about obedience very much in our culture. But as followers of Jesus Christ, because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the grave, when it comes to the issue of obedience, we have no choice. We've got to obey him. And the question for us this morning is, are we willing to obey Jesus no matter what? Are we content? Are we comfortable? Are we half-hearted? Are we those marked by compromise? Are we marked by obedience to Jesus? Are we willing to obey Him? Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8 through 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Could this be said of us? We say a lot about Jesus. We talk about Jesus. He's on our lips. But when the, the, the proof is in the pudding, when the rubber meets the road, does our lives truly reflect that we are passionately following Jesus? Are we obeying our Master and Lord? Are we inflamed with love for our Savior that translates into active obedience to Him? Let me say it again. Obedience to Christ will cause you problems. It will. But in the end, it's worth it. Now, what did we see happen a few weeks ago? In chapter 5. A few weeks ago, after the sinister episode with Ananias and Sapphira, you remember they came in and they lied and they were killed on the spot. It was God's dramatic judgment. And then we saw God's dramatic salvation. It said that more than ever, multitudes were coming to faith in Christ. The church is growing. The gospel's advancing in power. Uh, Jerusalem by this time is probably over 30% truly evangelical Christian. And so the gospel is doing great things. And as we saw a few weeks ago, as the gospel advances in power, we should expect opposition. And so what happens in our text this morning is the second wave of persecution that hits this infant church. Satan is alive and well. He's in the wings waiting to pounce on the church again. So let's read together. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. 
Let's actually start in verse 14 of chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 14. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but it sets the stage for how we're going to move through the rest of this chapter. Acts 5, 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even they carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now, do you see what's happening? Do you see the contrast? All these great things are happening, but what does verse 17 start with? But, in light of God's work, in light of this gospel expanding, but the high priests, the Sadducees, the ruling leaders, they are filled with jealousy. They're threatened. They've had enough. They've already charged Peter and John, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And this time they arrest them. Not just Peter and John, but it says they arrest all the apostles and put them in public prison. So everything about this morning's message focuses on obedience. And I want us to see five things about obedience. Five snapshots, five issues, five things that relate to the issue of obedience that we see from this text. And here's the first issue. The first thing we're going to consider this morning is the cost of obedience. The cost of obedience. Because there is a cost. We're going to see the cost of obedience right here in this text. Let's read verses 19 through 25. They've been thrown in prison. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council and all the synod of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would this come to? And someone said and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, the cost of obedience is imprisonment again. Again. And that doesn't stop. That doesn't stop them. God does a miracle. He sends an angel in the middle of the night to release them from the prison. And and the angel could have told them something very interesting. The angel could have said, all right, guys, you've been thrown in prison once. You've been thrown in prison twice. Go hide out. Go lay low for a while. Let things simmer down. And when things simmer down, you can kind of sneakily get back in and start teaching people. But just lay low for a few days. That's not what happens, is it? What have they been praying for time and time and time again? They've been praying for boldness. God filled them with the Holy Spirit. They've been speaking with boldness. And do you think that that now an angel is going to come and say, don't be bold? The angel tells them to do two things. He says, go stand and go tell. Go stand and go tell. Now, I think it's interesting that he says, go stand. Go stand in the temple. He doesn't say, go hide out. Go sit in a corner. He says, go public. 
Go to the temple. Now, we don't quite understand this, but the temple was the center of the culture. It would be like for us to go into Walmart and take our stand. Or go into the most populous place in Sterling and take our stand. Or or go on Facebook and take our stand. Or go on Fox News or CNN and take our stands. Or or, or post to Twitter to take our stand. Or or go on YouTube and take a stand. The, the, The angel says, go stand. Take your stand in the most public place in the entire culture. Go back to the temple. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Go stand. Go stand in the most public place. Now, number two, go speak. He says, go speak to them this word of life. Mine is capitalized in my translation, life. Now, what does it mean to go speak the word of life? Why is the gospel of Jesus Christ life? It reminds me of an episode where Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. If you remember, Jesus had fed the 5,000. He'd given the most... The most um, confrontational message in his ministry, the least seeker-sensitive message in his ministry, he basically says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And then we find these amazing words from Jesus. An amazing thing that happens in John 6, 63 through 69. Listen to Jesus. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, that is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now check out verse 66. This is amazing. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. Jesus, we can't go anywhere else because you have life. You are life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. He's the source of life. He's the author of life. He's the life-giving Savior. What does John 7, 38 say? Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, why is this so important? Because we live in a world of deadness. We live in a world of loneliness. We live in a world of trauma, a world of despair. There are so many people seeking so many things in all the wrong places. They're looking for things in sex, in money, in power, in relationships, in hobbies. All these things people are looking for meaning. They're looking for purpose. And what do we have to offer them? We offer them Jesus. Jesus gives life. He's the one who heals the broken hearts. He's the one who gives joy. He's the one who gives people peace. He's the one who gives people transformation. Now, it may not mean your life gets better, okay? Just because you get Jesus doesn't mean you have your best life now. It could mean that you have problems. But what you get in the end is Jesus. And the last thing I I want to try to tell you this is is that if you trust Jesus, your life's going to get better because Jesus should be enough. Amen? You get Jesus. If that's not enough, I don't know what is. Is Jesus enough? He's our very life. And that's what the angel says. Go stand. 
go stand. You've just been arrested, but go stand in the, in the temple and tell everybody Jesus is life. He gives life. And what do they do? They count the cost of obedience, don't they? They don't discuss. They don't have a meeting. They don't have a business meeting. They don't debate. What do they do? But look at the next text. Look at, the, look at what it says, verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak. They got there first thing in the morning. They went out publicly first thing in the morning. That takes guts. You've just been thrown in jail for speaking about Jesus. They go first thing in the morning. They take their stand. Now, let me just talk about obedience for a moment here, the cost of obedience. When you begin to be radical about obeying Jesus, the world your friends, and maybe even your family, and maybe even other Christians are going to start to look at you like, what in the world's going on? Because you see, when you get serious about obeying Jesus, things begin to change in your life. Your relationships change, your investments change, your time changes, your resource changes, your priority changes. You orient your entire life around God's kingdom and God's agenda. And a lot of people look at you and think that you're crazy. Why are you doing what you're doing? Your life can begin to be royally messed up when you start obeying Jesus. Because things change. You start having the agenda of Jesus and obedience is costly. It's costly. So there it is. The cost of obedience. But what's the second thing? There comes a time where we'll need to make a stand for our obedience. There comes a time where we may need to articulate. We may need, I'm just going to move this real quick. There may be a time where we need to articulate. Or we may need to give people the reason why we're taking our stand. The reason why we're obeying. And so here's what happens. Let's continue reading. In verse 25. Now, someone said, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. The captain of the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they are afraid of the people, stoning them. Now let's keep reading. Verse 27. When they brought them, they set them before the council. Okay, here's the Sanhedrin, the council. Again, they're, they're on trial. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, the religious leaders are confused because the jail's empty. They go look for the guys. They're not there. They're out preaching. And then they're here on a trial. And in verse 28, the high priest says, Don't you remember, guys? We charged you not to preach in this name. Now, I think it's interesting. They can't even bring themselves to say the name of Jesus. It burdens them to even say Jesus. It's this name. Don't preach in this name. Now, they know the writing's on the wall. This movement can't be stopped. It started with 120, it went to 3,000, it went to 5,000. Now probably half of Jerusalem is truly born-again Christian. And then Peter preaches another sermon. It's sermon after sermon, but this time Peter's not alone. He's not the sole preacher. It says Peter and the apostles. And what do they say in verse 29? We must obey God rather than man. That must is very important in the original language. 
It's, it's, it's like a moral imperative. It is crucially vital. We have no choice in the matter. God has said it. We must obey God rather than man. Now here's a tension. Because there's other Bible verses that speak about the governing authorities. And we've got to keep these in balance, okay? So, so if you go to Romans 13.1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, so we have a verse that says, Be subject to the government. Pay your taxes, obey the laws of the government, submit to whatever governing authority is in place. Titus tells us the same thing. Titus 3, 1 through 2. Remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities. There you have it again. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Be submissive to the governing authorities. We find it again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject Subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. So you've got these passages of scripture that teach that you've got to submit to the governing authorities. But, but at the end of the day, obedience to God trumps everything. If your governing authority is telling you to do something that goes against the very scripture of God, then you've got to obey God rather than man. And what's the content of their sermon? By now, you should know what the content of their sermon is. Every sermon's almost the same. Every sermon that Peter's preached has the same elements. What are the elements? You killed Jesus, the crucifixion. God raised him from the dead, the resurrection. He's at the right hand of the Father, the ascension. You need to repent for the forgiveness of sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's right there. That's exactly what they say. They say in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, there's the resurrection, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, crucifixion. God exalted him, there's the exaltation and ascension, at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance in Israel, forgiveness of sins. You need to repent, forgive, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, they call Jesus leader. Captain, prince, sovereign. Now, it's interesting. They start their speech with obedience. They end their sermon with obedience. We must obey God. That's how they started. How do they end it there in verse 32? We must obey him. It's bookend with this whole issue of obedience. So, so first of all, there's the cost of obedience. Secondly, there's the stand of obedience. But thirdly, there's the pain of obedience. The pain of obedience. Now let's look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or his undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This is not the answer these religious leaders wanted to hear. They wanted an end to this thing. 
They wanted compliance. They wanted obedience. They wanted the the apostle to say, okay, we're going to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Okay, we get the point. We've been in prison. We will shut up. But what does Peter do? Peter and the apostles get in their face again and say, you killed Jesus. You need to repent of your sins. You need to find forgiveness in Christ alone. And what does it say? They were what? Enraged, verse 33. They were enraged. This word means to be cut to the quick. They were cut in two. They were torn in two. They were infuriated. They were split open in rage. Now, do you see an irony here? How did the people respond when Peter preached at Pentecost? Remember at Pentecost? When Peter preached, it said the people were what? Cut to the heart. So much so that they were, they were cut to the heart in repentance and brokenness and humility. They came to faith in Christ. They realized that Christ is their only Savior. They were cut to the heart. But see, these men were cut to the heart, but not in repentance, not in brokenness, not in wanting to find forgiveness in Jesus. They're cut to the heart in rage, in violence, wanting to kill Jesus. And that's going to sometimes happen. I'll just be honest with you. When you talk about Jesus, some people are going to be split open with rage. They're going to visibly be bothered by the fact that you're talking about Jesus. You're going to hit a nerve with them. They're going to be upset. They may even be stark raving mad. There will come a time where people are going to get upset when you present the gospel. Now, there's an old Puritan saying that's very good. I like this old Puritan saying. The same sun that melts the snow also hardens the clay. Now, let me explain that. The Son. The gospel's the same message. Okay? The gospel's the same message. We tell people the same message. But to some people, when the gospel comes upon their hearts, they're going to melt like the snow. They're going to be broken. They're going to be humble. They're going to be, they're gonna be um, wanting to repent. They're going to see their need for Jesus. They're going to they're cry out, what must I do to be saved? They, they've been broken by the gospel. But other people, when you tell them the gospel, they're going to be like clay that hardens. They're going to put up walls. They're going to be resistant. They're not going to want anything to do with it. Same message. Same message, the gospel. Some people melt. Some people harden. But in this case, instead of killing them, cooler heads prevail. You've got the the venerable Pharisee Gamaliel. He's honored by all. He's respected. It's kind of like that, that commercial back in the 80s when I was growing up. If you remember, when E.F. Hutton speaks, everyone listens. It's kind of like Gamaliel. He's speaking. Everyone's listening. What, what does he have to say? And he gives two examples from history. A guy named Theodos and a guy named Judas the Galilean. Now, Theodos, he talks about, basically was a magician. He was, a, he was this weird prophet that, that got this following of people to come out to the Jordan River and said, okay, I'm going to split the Jordan River in half in my own power. Didn't happen. He got killed. Okay, the other guy, Judas the Galilean, political revolutionary, had a few people following him. He died. And so both of these men had a large gathering at first, and then it died off. And so Gamaliel is probably thinking, okay, we have two examples of things that started out big. These prophets that came along, and there was a a big gathering, a big frenzy, a big to-do, but after a while it just kind of fizzled out. Let's just let this happen with these guys. But see, here's the problem. Theodos died. His followers dispersed. Judas, the Galilean, died. His followers dispersed. Jesus died, but what? Rose again. He's alive. They didn't didn't count on the resurrection that these people following Jesus are because he is alive. Now, it's interesting. 
Because this Gamaliel, even though he's not a Christian, he's not a believer, he, he's, a Jewish, he's a Jewish man, he understood the Old Testament, he understood God's sovereignty. Because what does he say? He says, you know, if this is really of God, it'll happen. If it's not of God, it'll fizzle. It'll fi- it, it may, this may be a big deal today, but, it, but tomorrow it could be yesterday's news. Let it play out. Today it's on TMZ, it's on the tabloids, it's on Fox News and Twitter, but tomorrow it's going to be Octomom. Anybody remember Octomom? It's going, to be the, it's going to be yesterday's news. Just let it pass. If it's of man, it will be destroyed. If it's of God, it cannot be destroyed. It cannot fail. You're not going to be able to stop it. Now, that's a good principle for us to live by, out of the mouth of a pagan Jewish man. If it's of God, it will last. If it's of man, it may not last. There's a lot of things you can do in your family, in your relationships, as a church, that are of man. We can do a lot of things in our own ingenuity, in our own power, in our own cleverness. There's a lot of things that we can be doing that are good things. But if they are not directly from God, they will not last. Only the things of God will stand. Now, the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council, does something to get the apostles' attention. I can't kill these guys because it's not going to be politically expedient because half the town's on their side. But we've got to make an example of them. So what do they do? They, breed, they beat them in, and first of all, they beat them. They're beaten. Probably with a three-stranded strap of calf hide on the back and on the shoulder, flogged, beaten. It would have been very painful, okay? Not going to kill them, not going to stone them, but we're going to beat them. And secondly, we're going to charge them. Don't you ever, no ever, I dare you not to ever do this, speak in the name of Jesus. Don't do it. Now, they escape death. There's pain in obedience. They get beaten. Now, for us, hopefully this week, you're not going to go out and get beaten up for being a Christian. But there's pain in, in obedience. Maybe not as extreme as getting beaten by religious leaders, but think about it for a moment. If you're truly wanting to obey Christ in a radical way, there may be some pain involved. You may lose a relationship. You may take a hit at work. You may incur financial loss. You may be ostracized in your neighborhood. There may be some pain that comes with obedience. The cost of obedience. The stand of obedience. The pain of obedience. But fourthly, this is where it gets amazing. This is the part that's hard for us to really understand. The joy of obedience. Look at verse 41. Amazing, amazing words. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Luke, did you get that right? Shouldn't you have written, they left the presence of the council really upset and down in the mouth and totally dejected that they were counted worthy to suffer the dis- dishonor for the name. Did you get it right, Luke? What does he say? They rejoiced. That, that's mind-boggling. They counted it a blessing. They found joy in being beaten for Jesus. Suffering dishonor for naming the name of Christ. Very similar to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 10 through 12 on the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to the words of Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is the same thing. Blessed, be joyful when you're persecuted. 
Luke chapter 6, 22 through 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. So for their fathers did the prophets. Now, can you conceive of leaping for joy when you get persecuted? I can't, I can't conceive of that. Jesus says, leap for joy when you get persecuted. When you get reviled for being a Christian, count it a joy, a privilege. Tertullian was one of the early church fathers, a great church father in history. He was before the Roman emperor, and they were asking him questions about Christianity. And listen to the words of Tertullian, the early church father. He said this, Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. In other words, we get his famous saying, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. You kill Christians, they're just going to keep growing up. You try to get rid of Christians, they're just going to keep growing up. You can kill them, it's just going to make the movement stronger. I don't know of any other movement where you kill Christians and it gets stronger because of the gospel. Acts 14.22 says this, and we need to remember this, Christians. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You will not hear this on religious broadcasting. You will not hear this on religious TV. You will not hear this, most of all, out there in the world. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not an easy ride. There's going to be tribulations that we will have to go through on our way to heaven. It's just the way it is. 1 Peter 4, 12-14 Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory in God rests upon you. How many of you have ever heard of a man named Christopher Love? Probably not many of you. He was a Welsh Presbyterian pastor in the 1600s. In 1615, he got beheaded for his faith in Jesus Christ in England. This was during the Civil War. Oliver Cromwell was the prime minister. His friends went to Oliver Cromwell to, 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 to try to appeal for leniency, but he was to be made a, an example of during this time. <clears throat> so he was beheaded. He was martyred as a Christian for his faith. And the interesting thing about Christopher Love is we have a record of the letters he wrote to his wife. Mary. He would write these letters back and forth to his wife, and we have the last existing letter right before he died. The night of, uh, right before he died, we have the letter that he wrote to his wife. Now think about what you'd write to your wife if you knew you were going to be beheaded the next day. His wife is pregnant, by the way. Your pregnant wife, you're going to be beheaded. What does he say? Let me read to you, quote, his, his letter. Be not troubled to think what shall become of thee. Again, this is back in England, so you know, forgive the these and thys, but we'll read it the way it was written. Be not troubled to think what shall become of thee and thine after my death. For be assured that my God and the God of the widows and fatherless will not forsake thee, but will wonderfully provide for those and be comforted in this, that though men take thy husband from thee, they cannot take thy God from thee. And so do not think that thou hast lost thy husband, but only parted with him for a while. And in the meantime... Thy Savior will be a husband to thee and a father to thy children. That's amazing. The night that you're about to be killed, honey, I know you're pregnant, 
and I'm going to die for my faith, but Christ will be your husband. Christ will be the father of our children. He counted himself worthy to die a death for Christ. You can read about many of these in Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a sober and a good read from time to time. Finally, fifthly, we see the fruit. The fruit of obedience. What does all this produce? Is it just for naught? Is it in vain? Look at verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Notice it says every day. They don't take a holiday. They don't take a day off. They don't get comfortable every day. What have they just, they've just been beaten. They've been thrown in jail. They go out every day. And the, te- the text here says, in my translation, they did not cease to preach and teach. Some translations say they still continued to preach and teach. The two things that we're called to do as Christians, teach and preach, teach Jesus, evangelize, tell people about Christ. They continued to do it day after day in two venues, two places they did this. What's the first place? In the temple. That's the public gathering. That was the large group gathering of the church. We've talked about this for many weeks now in Solomon's Colonnade. It was the public gathering where they got together as a public group and said, we are going to worship the living God together publicly. Now, right now in America, we have the freedom to worship publicly. We have a great building where we can come peaceably. We can come to worship in this place without fear of somebody coming through here and taking us all out with machine guns and carrying me off and beheading me because I'm your pastor. We have that freedom. We can come and gather and worship. But let me remind you, there are brothers and sisters around this world that at 2 o'clock in the morning, they have to sneak out on the darkness of night and go to places that nobody knows about with blindfolds to worship in darkness because of fear of persecution. So please don't say, I can't make it to church this Sunday. I'm stepping on toes, but let me just tell you this. When we have the freedom to come and worship in a place like this, and there are brothers and sisters losing their lives, there's no excuse for not making public worship a priority in your life. We've got a privilege to come and worship together. Let's not take advantage of that. Let's not take that for granted. We show our obedience by coming publicly to worship. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. Some of them had the habit of not neglecting to meet together. For some reason, they did not want to be identified with the body of Christ. They were not meeting together, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, let me just stop. I know there's times where you're going to miss church. I'm I'm not being legalistic saying you have to be here every Sunday. I know, but what I'm saying is this. There's a privilege in America to worship freely. Let's not take that for granted. Secondly, where else did they go? They went from house to house. This was what we'd call the small group ministry, if you will. Large group ministry, public proclamation, singing, preaching. This is the big group. But then they had the small group ministry, house to house. You see this model in the Bible. We've seen it. Big group, small group. We call them here growth groups. It's an opportunity for you to be in a small group Bible study where you can read the Bible, be among, be among people where you can talk, you can discuss, you can pray, you can care for one another, you can, you can get um, into the nitty-gritty of each other's lives. And so I would encourage you, I personally invite every single one of you, if you're not involved in a growth group, 
We have growth groups on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. We've got them on Wednesday nights. We've got, some on, we've got a men's group on Tuesday morning. We've got a women's group on Thursday morning. We've got many opportunities for you to be involved in a growth group. And in a few weeks, the growth group catalog will come out explaining all the new growth groups that will be happening after the first of the year. But it's vital to your Christian life that you be involved in a small group. You can only get so much from hearing me rant and rave every Sunday. There's no opportunity for you to talk back. And I like that. But in a small group, you can talk back. You can banter. You can pray. You can, you can discuss. You, can, you, you have opportunity to get to know each other. You need that. You need the large gathering. You need the small group. And that was the model of the early church. Big group gathering, small group. In these, in these neighborhoods, in these houses, they infiltrated their neighborhoods with the gospel. Wouldn't it be awesome if, if Sterling in northeastern Colorado was infiltrated with the gospel in our neighborhoods? Now remember our theme. Obedience to Christ will cause you problems. But it's worth it. Obedience is costly. Obedience is painful. Obedience is radical. Now you may be thinking at this point, I'm off the hook. I'm off the hook because I don't live in Burma. I don't live in Saudi Arabia. I don't live in a persecuted nation, Pastor Sean, so I'll never have to die for my faith. Are you sure about that? Are you sure you're never going to have to die for your faith? Let me tell you this. Jesus said very plainly, you have to die every day. Let me let you listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, 23 through 25. Don't ever say, I'm not going to have to die. Listen to Jesus. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The Christian life is one of daily death. You realize that we're to die to ourself every day. Die to self-sufficiency, die to self-promotion, die to self-exaltation, die to self-preservation. And let me just say this, when you die to self, it's painful. When you take up your cross daily and you follow Jesus and you die to yourself, that's painful. That's costly. But Jesus says every day we've got to die. Every day we've got to die to ourself and we've got to live for Christ. So don't ever say, I'm not going to have to die. Every day we've got to die. Take up your cross daily and follow me but in the end you may be asking well i don't want to die i don't want to be painful i I don't want the discomforts i I don't want to deny myself i don't want to go through this let me just say again obedience to christ is going to cause you problems but in the end it's worth it why is it worth it because you get jesus and that's enough you lose your life to get Jesus. He's your prize. He's your treasure. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. In this story, Jesus is that one pearl. You give up 
everything and in joy you get the one thing that means everything Jesus it may be costly it may be painful it may be uncomfortable it may stretch you it may take you places you thought you'd never go but in the end you get Jesus and the question we have to ask is that enough is Jesus enough Because if he's not, then in the words of the astronauts, Houston, we have a problem. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Obedience to Jesus is going to cause you problems. But in the end, it's worth it. Because you get Jesus. And I don't know where you are this morning in your walk with Christ. I don't know what you brought into this room in your life, what struggles, what trials, what issues. But let me just say this. Christ wants to meet you where you are this morning. And Christ wants to change your heart. And Christ wants you to be one that would follow Him. And so in the quietness of this moment this morning, would you go before the living God and just, just plead with Him to grant you the strength and the grace to be obedient? To understand these truths. To be willing to take a stand. To be willing to die to self daily. To be willing to count the cost of following Christ. To see in Jesus the glory of having everything that you need. He's enough. He's more than enough. He's everything. Spend some time alone in prayer this morning, going before the Lord. Holy Spirit, we need a deep work from you right in this moment to open our hearts and our eyes to the truth that Jesus is worth everything. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see that Jesus is the pearl of great price. Open our eyes to see the glories of Christ and that we would be willing to risk all for him risk reputation, risk relationships, risk even money, risk all to find true life in Jesus. What good is it if we gain the world and yet lose or forfeit our very own souls? The problem, Lord, is that everywhere we turn, the world is telling us to gain it. We're bombarded with messages every day, Lord, saying that the world is what we need to have. We see commercials. We see billboards. We see tweets. We see banner ads. We see things come all through our our, our senses that are saying, this is what we live for. And let Jesus, would you break through all of that clutter and come to us and say, no, that's not what we live for. 
That's the world. And its desires are passing away. We live for Christ. He is our life. He is our source. He is our joy. So Holy Spirit, would you do a deep work of grace in our hearts this morning? We all need it. We need to be convicted. We need to be confronted. We need our toes to be stepped on, Holy Spirit. So do that in the only sovereign way you can do that. But Lord, we don't want to leave this place the same as we did when we came in. We want to be changed. We want to be obedient. Grant us the grace to do so. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to respond this morning to truth.